So let me make a pitch for a Good Friday service. I encourage all of you to come. Um, there will not be a sermon, but it will be the title of this um, service will be the eulogy. You know, in a eulogy, we think about the things that a person has done in the past or taught, and then we look at circumstances and we sing hymns. So it will be a very reflective service as we come to listen again to the things that Jesus did and Jesus taught, and then to sing truths from the Bible, uh, the hymns, and then to meditate. Today we want to talk about what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. This is called the Olivet Discourse, obviously, because it was done in Olivet. Um, as the people, as the disciples were looking on at the temple and admiring the temple, and then Jesus gave them a real downer. You look at this temple, it's beautiful. In Mark, it says that the people, the disciples even talked about the stones and how beautiful the stones were. And Jesus said, very soon this temple will be torn down, not a single stone will remain. And the disciples then asked, when would that happen? And then they asked two more questions. When will you come again? And when will be the end of the age? But this is undoubtedly the hardest passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Lots and lots of commentaries, thousands of commentaries, articles, sermons have been preached about this passage. And it's difficult on two grounds. The first, of course, is the sequence of events. Read in this passage alone, the sequence seems straightforward enough. But when we compare it with other parts of the Bible, the sequences then become a bit more confusing. But as we then look at the events of the world, it's even more difficult to interpret this passage. Where, does, where do these prophecies fit into the larger picture of what is happening in the world and what other parts of the Bible, the other prophetic books, as well as letters fit in? But the second reason why it's such a difficult uh, passage to understand it's more that it is a realistic, no-holds-barred look into the future. I found it very hard even as I prepared to preach because it is dark. It doesn't hold back, it doesn't sugarcoat the situation. Most of us would love to hear a sermon and I would love to preach a sermon that is full of goodness, full of assurance that things will be good. That after the covid Things will go smoothly and we'll be happy and we'll prosper. But here Jesus was saying just the opposite. Even as the disciples were admiring the temple, Jesus was saying this will be torn down. And not only will this temple be torn down, worse things will happen. That there will be great persecution, there will be great deception, that people will have to run because destruction is on the way. It, is a very, it was, must have been a very difficult message for the disciples to hear. It is also a very difficult message for us to hear. That perhaps for many of us, what we hope to be the future may not be the future at all. But then again, I think I would much rather hear the truth of what's happening and be prepared for it and to know the truth and to know the hope that comes with it than to live just blithely, expecting the best and then be hit by something that's tragic and disastrous. 
I would at least prefer to be warned of the things that may come, the things that will come, and then told, this is what will come, expect it, and then prepare for it. And there is hope indeed. So let's look at Matthew chapter 24, the entire chapter. It's pretty long, but as I read it, ask then what stands out to you as this discourse is read. Let us pray. Father, speak your truths to us, that though your truths may be hard to take, though your truths may hit us and cause us to be sad, perhaps even alarmed and frightened, yet, Lord, as you speak your truths to us, let your Holy Spirit assure us and comfort us that you are God, and you are our Father, the God who did not hold back even your Son, but gave him up, that you may save us and protect us. And so, Father, even as we read these warnings of the things that will be, help us to be prepared for them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things? he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, would not have left, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We first look at, we first look at the sequence that Jesus tells us, and then we ask what was the purpose of what Jesus was saying and what has been fulfilled already. Then we look at the difficulty of this prophecy in relation to the rest of the Bible and to the world. And finally, we ask the question, what implications does this have for us today? What is God's message to us today? The sequence for Jesus was rather simple and straightforward. The disciples had mentioned the temple, and Jesus then told, him, told them, this temple will be torn down, every stone will be torn away, destroyed, not a single stone will be left unturned. And then the disciples asked, when will this happen? When will the temple be torn down? When will Jesus come back? When will the end come? Seemingly, it's three questions, but actually it's two. First, the destruction of the temple, and then second, the coming of Jesus and the end of the world, which, is, which will come together. So Jesus began by telling them, first of all, you will hear false claims of the Messiah. People will be saying, I am the Messiah, he is here, he is there. You'll hear lots of claims of the Messiah. And then there will be wars, rumours of wars. Together with the wars and rumours of wars, there will be famines and earthquakes. And then in the midst of that, there will be persecution and then Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel. Let me say a few words about this abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel. Daniel prophesied 
that the temple where sacrifices were made twice a day would be taken away. Abomination means a great sin, but the abomination of desolation means that desolation is a loss of hope. It will be this great sin that will take away all your hope. A century later, a Seleucid king named uh, Articus, uh, Antiochus um, Epiphanes, um, Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century BC came and conquered Jerusalem, occupied Jerusalem. And when he saw the resistance, he knew what to do to destroy their hope. He went into the temple, sacrificed a pig instead to God and forced the people to eat pork. Pigs, as you know, is known to be unclean to the Jews. And so he forced the Jews to eat pork and then he erected an altar to Zeus, his God. When the temple was so desecrated, there was loss of hope. There was no hope for the people because the most holy place, the place where they could turn to God for help, was desecrated. They had become an altar for Zeus instead. And so the, the fulfilment of this prophecy in Daniel was fulfilled. It took place a century later. Now Jesus was saying that a similar abomination would take place in your time as the temple is torn down and your hope is taken away. And then he says, the disciples, increase of evil, with the increase of evil, love will grow dim. That there will be so much evil, people will betray each other, there will no longer be faithfulness and friendship and love. Ironically, as that happened, the gospel would be proclaimed to the world. We look at this irony between the loss of hope and the loss of goodness and the proclamation of the gospel and how it goes together. And then people are to flee. But then Jesus says, this is just the start. After that, the heavenly bodies will be shaken, the sun and the moon will not shine, the stars will fall from the sky. And then again, people will say, Jesus is here, Jesus is there. Don't believe them. Because when Jesus comes, east to west, north to south, the whole world will see his coming. Now that's a very straightforward prophecy and it, was pro and it was fulfilled, much of it was fulfilled in AD 70. Jesus said, "None, all of this will be fulfilled in this generation. Indeed, in that generation, there was great persecution. There were false prophets and false messiahs claiming to be God. In fact, the more persecution there was, the more people looked to God for help. And so when they heard rumours that Jesus is here, Jesus is there, they would, they would run to Jesus. And then in AD 70, the Romans occupied the temple in Jerusalem and tore it down, destroying it altogether. And so in one sense, the prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. But then we look at the complications then. What's so complicated about this prophecy? Well, for one very obvious reason, 2,000 years later, we are still alive and we're still here. Jesus hasn't come. And that's confusing because we would have thought that all these things were one sequence, that Jesus would come at the end of, at the destruction of the temple and then rapture and all of our, the judgment would come. But 2,000 years later, we're still around. And that's pretty complicated for us. The second difference, problem is that even after the destruction of the temple, 
The disciples were talking about the Antichrist and the end of time. They still expected time to end very soon. Temple was destroyed in AD 70. The epistle to John of John, that means 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, was written in between AD 90 to AD 110. And at that time, John the, John the Evangelist was talking about the Antichrist. To give you an example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, John says that the end will, has come, the end is near, because the Antichrist is here. In fact, there are several Antichrists. So John in his epistle was already predicting that the end was near around AD 110. And there were signs of the Antichrist, signs of the coming. And yet, the end was not near. But even then, John, in a sense, contradicted Jesus. Because when Jesus talked about the abomination, everyone thought that this abomination of desolation was the Antichrist. But 20 to 50 years later, John was still talking about the Antichrist. So clearly the Antichrist wasn't the one who caused the abomination. What then is it? It's very confusing. But what we understand, and actually I, I will not explain the whole sequence of it because that's really very difficult. Um, as I said, thousands of books have been written. Basically, there is a sequence to it, but the time is not known. What can we learn from this? First of all, that Jesus makes it very clear that he does not know when it will happen. And so neither should we be trying to predict, is it this century or next century? Jesus says in verse 36, verse 36 he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, even, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so when Jesus was talking about the sequences, he was not trying to pin down a year or a day or an hour when this was happening. Jesus was telling them, the disciples, for a very different reason. It was not to help them to predict the timing of it. These days, we're all very interested in predicting things because it keeps us excited. It keeps our minds stimulated and working. And we try to figure out when it will happen but you know, for centuries and centuries, people have been trying to predict when it will happen. In fact, at the beginning of this millennium, there were groups of people who had stopped working, they had gone to pray, waiting for Jesus to return. Century after century, year after year, people have tried to identify the Antichrist, have tried to figure out when Jesus would come back. But Jesus made it very clear that's not his purpose at all. His purpose was not to predict or to help people know when these things will happen. And so while we wonder at the sequence of things, we need to be aware that Jesus was not telling us at all. It could be 2,000 years, it could be 3,000, 4,000, or it could just be tomorrow. The purpose of Jesus was something else. What is the purpose of Jesus? First, it was pastoral in nature. Jesus was telling his disciples not as a discourse of an intellectual discourse. Rather, he was telling his disciples what would happen, how to prepare themselves. 
and not to be alarmed. In verse 6, for example, this is what Jesus says, You will hear of wars, rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Listening to wars, hearing of wars here and there is a very alarming thing. It is terrifying. If we were expecting things to go well, if tomorrow we heard that China and US went to war, and that's highly likely actually, seeing the rhetoric that they have, but if we were to hear that they were going to war, we would definitely panic and wonder what would happen. And Jesus was telling his disciples, when you hear of these terrible things happening, I have already warned you about them. Do not be alarmed. Because these things will happen. Again in verse 13, Jesus says, but the one who stands firm will be saved. It was a pastoral speech that Jesus gave to his disciples to stand firm. Because when you stand firm to what you believe in, then you will be saved. Then again in verse 17 to 20, Jesus gives very practical advice. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one go in the field to go back to get the cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that the flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Jesus was giving very practical advice to his disciples and to his listeners. In fact, it is said that as they saw the abomination take place in the temple, as the Romans invaded Jerusalem and took the temple, the people remembered what Jesus had said and they fled. Many of them, thousands of them were saved because they fled. They, they ran out of Jerusalem to settle outside. And so Jesus was very concerned for his people and gave them practical advice. When you see these things happening, run for your lives. That teaches us a very important lesson too. How often do we, how much do we hold these things, the things that we have in our hands? How tightly do we hold them? Jesus says that if let no one in the field go back to get the cloak. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. It reminds us of Lot's wife when God told, uh, sorry, uh, Lot, yeah, Lot and his wife, when God told Lot to flee with his family, Lot's wife could not let go of her possessions and she turned back. She was turned into a pillar of salt. What Jesus is saying is that when the persecutions come, you just got to let go and run. And one of the things then that we need to be prepared for is this. How tightly do we hold the things that we have? Or are we ready to run when the time comes? Many of those in Jerusalem, when they saw the signs, remember what Jesus taught them, and they fled without taking anything with them. Third, in 20, verse 25, Jesus said, Verse 25, Jesus says, See, I have told you ahead of time. So Jesus was warning the people and getting them ready for the tribulation that would come. Indeed, Jesus was not trying to make a prediction at all. He was warning his people of the things that they had to ex expect, they could expect. So it was pastoral in nature. 
Now, one of the things, other things that Jesus told them, wanted them to know, was that things would be unpredictable. That we cannot expect, we need to expect the worst. We cannot actually predict. In verse 37 to 39, Jesus says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Jesus wasn't saying that the people were evil, although the Bible, the Old Testament does say that the people were evil. But here the example Jesus was giving was that the people at Noah's time were simply living life as usual. They were enjoying life. They were getting married and having the children get married. They were eating and drinking. Life was to go on for them. But even as they tried to normalise their lives, they failed to realise that calamities would come to them. From our own experience, we know that calamities come very often without warning. We should take note of what Jesus was saying, that it will be a time when you normalise everything, that life is just booming, life is just flourishing, and then you will be caught by surprise. It's a good thing, perhaps, then, that we have a pre, preview of, of this that's happening with COVID-19. None of us expected it. In fact, we thought that certain industries that were booming then are now almost defunct. The travel industry, the hospitality industry, these were the top industries that we were looking forward to. We knew that these were the areas of growth, high growth. And yet these were the industries that went bankrupt, that had to uh, let go of many of their workers, that now are facing great trouble. None of us expected that. Personally, I was already planning on having a short break every month because I was getting very tired and I was thinking two days in JB or Batam or Bintan. Well, we only had one time in January. After that, that was, that was it. We couldn't get out of the country. Many of us had big plans, whether in church or personally in family. We had big plans. We didn't expect this to happen. But what we need to be aware of then, that we need to learn this lesson, is that these things come to us when we least expect it. And we need to learn this lesson well. Because for many of us, we are just looking forward to the end of COVID. Then you say, hey, I'm all ready to go touring again. Even when phase three came, we rushed to our restaurants and we had a great time. It's natural because we so badly want it, want life to be restored. We want good times to come. It's a normal reaction. But Jesus is saying that even so, be aware that these calamities will catch you by surprise. And so, it is unpredictable. The fourth that Jesus said was that things will get worse. Now that's the most distressing, most depressing thought, that things will get worse. When the temple was destroyed, people thought in AD 70, people thought that that was the worst that could be. One million Jews were slaughtered. But then, when we think about the Holocaust, six million Jews were slaughtered. Seventy-five million people died in the process. 
things got far worse. In verse 40, verse 21, Jesus says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. What Jesus is saying is that time will get worse. The people thought that the destruction of the temple was the worst. But then World War II came, World War I, World War II, the Holocaust came, and we discovered that things could get a lot worse. And in between then and now, we have had many, many wars, small ones, but huge number of casualties. Vietnam War, now in Myanmar, wars in different places, we hear of them. The reality is we have to face these realities. COVID itself has so far taken 2.69 lives. Can you imagine that just an epidemic like that? 2.69 million lives, today's count. And that's only a rough estimate. It probably is a lot more than that that's not been recorded. But you know, we psychologically, we don't want to think of the worst. We don't want to face the reality that things can get worse. We want to live in our little bubble, believe that things will only improve. It's an alluring sermon too to tell everyone that things will improve. But whether we look at what Jesus is teaching or whether we look at the things, the way life goes on, the world events take place, we have to be alerted to the reality that things will get worse. And so Jesus said it's unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equal again, meaning that things will continue to get worse until the climax where it will no longer be worse anymore. It could no longer be worse anymore. And then Jesus will come. We haven't faced the pinnacle yet. And while we hope to live life as normally as possible, we have to keep that reality at the back of our minds that things will get worse. And they will come when we least expect it. So now this sermon sounds extremely bleak. Actually, there is much hope. It is bleak because the situation in the world will get bleak. And that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to know. But he wanted them to know not so much that they could go home terribly depressed. And I pray that none of you will go home terribly depressed but he wanted them to face the reality of life and then to be prepared for it. How then should we be prepared for this? First, to know God. To know God, that takes two things at least. First is to know his word. You know, in our day, we are very conceptual and so we remember lots of teachings that Jesus taught. We remember very little of the verses of the references, of the things that the Bible teaches us. And that's one of our biggest weaknesses. I joke often that when I quote scripture, I paraphrase, and I paraphrase very badly. It's a good joke, but it is a very poor discipline at all. And over the years, I want you, all of us, to get into this discipline. And I'll help you with that. Now that I'm on the podcast every day, we could do a lot of things. But one of the things that I want all of us to learn is to remember, memorize scripture. In the early days, that was very often done. Sunday school, we memorized scripture. As we grew older, lots of scriptural verses were in our minds. We need to know the word of God. Blithely going through life, thinking that we know Jesus, doesn't help at all. Which is why I wanted the 
podcast in the first place so that every day we would listen to the Word of God, every day we would know a little more about Jesus so that over the years we will know Jesus for two reasons really. First is that there will be false teachers. The only way, the most effective way of knowing false teaching is when we know the truth. Not about learning all the cults because there will be so many different lies that you'll never remember them. But if you knew the truth, if you were grounded in the truth, then whatever people say that is not true, you will know altogether. But the second reason is that that the love, um, let me get that passage, that the love of most will grow cold. In verse 10, verse 10 it says that because of the persecution, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The love of most will will grow cold. If we do not know our God and what He says, we will forget during the persecutions. During the harshness of persecution, we will forget a lot of things. And unless we know the Word of God, we cannot stand firm. The second thing about knowing God is that it should not just be the Word of God, it has to be God Himself. And that starts right away. To know God is to put into practice and to experience the truth that's written in His Word. Remembering, memorizing all that God has taught us isn't going to help us if we don't live it out and then discover how real God is. Word of God is experiential. It has to be tasted. That's why God, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Whatever He says is true. If we do not put to practice and really know God, and able to testify that He is good, then we will not really know God. And this is where that paradox is, because on the one hand, Jesus says in verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And then in verse 14, He says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Persecution brings one of two responses. The first response is that we will run to self-preservation. We will forget God and we will just flounder and we'll give up on our faith. But the other side of it is that when there is persecution, we will run to God. And therefore, the gospel becomes very relevant to people. When people see problems and we say, we have a God who is your shepherd. We have a God who sees you through the worst of times people will run to God. I always wondered at this huge paradox, you know, during the time of slavery, the slaves learned the gospel from the evil slave masters. But the best spiritual songs and best spiritual theology came from the blacks who were slaves. So while they were oppressed by the people, they found a God, they found God who then gave them hope. Much as they experienced hardship, they had hope in their lives. So it is when we go through tribulation that gospel will give hope to those who turn to Him, but those who do not will then give up on their faith. And so get to know God. Two ways of getting to know God, study the Word 
and know God Himself. The third thing then is fellowship. I encourage all of you to join small groups because small groups are where people gather to build each other up, to learn the Word of God, to encourage one another. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting one another as some are always capable of doing, but let us encourage each other even more so as we see the day, the end approaching. As we see the end approaching, all the more we gather into groups and we share with each other and encourage each other. And so I encourage all who are in small groups already, take your small groups seriously. Build your friendships, build each other up. More so because in those last days, love for each other will grow cold if we help together build each other up. Small groups will be the backbone for any church. This is something that I learned in COVID too. That suddenly when the circuit breaker came, we couldn't meet each other, we couldn't do anything, we could only run TV services to congregations. Who wants to watch TV services anyway? I mean, it's like watching a video. And that was all that we could do. But you know, those who had small groups continued to meet via Zoom electronically, they continued to encourage each other. Those are the ones who found friendship and support throughout this period. I would strongly encourage all of you to prayerfully consider joining a small group, forming small groups, times, occasions where you can pray with each other, learn the word, encourage each other, build friendships. And so while we are given a bleak look at the future, at what things can be, let us also take note that first of all, God cares for us enough to tell us these things, warn us about the truth that we might be prepared for the worst. We need to take seriously knowing God. And this is one of the things that I encourage young parents as well. The best gift that you can give to your children is that you help them to take God seriously. Because the persecution, the tribulations probably will not come at our age, given, given our age. I mean, I'm close to 60. Probably I'll go to heaven before these things happen. Maybe not. But the higher likelihood is for the next generation and their generations to experience tribulation. And if all that we care for are their studies, how well they do, we do not equip them, we do not prepare them for the worst. And so we need to take seriously helping our children to know God. Sending them to Sunday school is a good way. Sending them to church and youth ministry is a good way. But let me say that there's nothing beats doing it yourself. Talking to your children about God, sharing with them about God, maybe even reading the Bible together with them. But you have to take faith seriously and help our children take faith seriously. So we know God. And then we gather to encourage each other. When we take the predictions of Jesus, the warnings of Jesus seriously, it should then begin to change our lives. And we will have hope because we still believe in a God who has told us all these things and who says that he would not spare even his own son but to give him up for us all because of his love for us. Let us pray.
Father, help us to take an honest look at the things that might be and the things that could be, or even the things that will be. For you did not sugarcoat your warnings, you did not cite, you did not move sidestep any of these calamities that will come to us. But you presented them honestly to your disciples, to those you love. Not that you might alarm them, but so that you could prepare each of them to face the things that will come. And Father, you speak the same message to us. Help us to face the things that will come. No longer allow us to live blithely and ignorantly, believing that things will simply get better and refusing to see the realities of the world. For even as you say that life will get tough, we actually see it all around us. It's just good that we have a good government that has kept us safe, but, but there are wars all around us. the famines, earthquakes and disasters all around us. There is persecution all around us as well. Help us, Lord, not to fool ourselves to think that we will always be secure, but to take your warning seriously and therefore to take this time of peace, take this time of prosperity to know you, to draw close to you, to, to know how real you are. Help us to take this opportunity, these times to draw close to one another too, to care about our relationships. That together we may encourage one another for the end, for the hardships that will come. So God, we ask, prepare us, cause us to be serious about knowing you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.